You know, we all have life lessons, don't we? Uh, the sooner we learn them, the sooner uh, uh, maybe the pain stops. Uh, some people, <clears throat> it appears though, uh, you might take a few knocks and bumps and bruises along the way before you learn the lesson. So I would strongly encourage you as soon as you can, as you go through the school of hard knocks, that you learn those lessons. I can remember, I was thinking back this past week, several lessons that I've learned along through the years. And one of those lessons that I learned was whenever I realized that there's domestic law and then there is civil law. And whenever those two uh, aren't lining up and I'm neither of them are the problem, but I'm the problem. Uh, I can remember the time whenever uh, domestic law said I had to live on a curfew. I had to be in at a certain hour or certain standards to live under the house. And my kids have lived under and I had to be home at a certain hour. And I can remember trying my best, leaving the girlfriend's house a little late, but uh, trying to get home by civil law time. Well, to, to get home, excuse me, we get home by domestic law. But to get home by domestic law time, I was going to have to break civil law. And if you've never learned, um, they, don't, they, don't, they don't compromise. Not only did I not make it home on time, but I got a special high-speed award, little square piece of cardboard from uh, a guy in a nice uniform and blue lights. And he gave me this and he said, uh, you know, slow it down. Uh, but I was going so fast, I had to slow it down and, by, by the way, go to court uh, to appear because it was that fast. my first speeding ticket. Uh, but I learned about laws at that point. You learn these things. There are certain things as you go through life you, you should pick up. Sometimes you look at your kids and you go, when are you ever going to learn? You know, there are certain things that as parents, it's upon us to help our kids, our next generation learn. You know, one of those things that I just thought, again, just lessons that, Lord, one of those, I think it's just a simple balancing of a checkbook. That was one of the things that my mother, I had to get a checkbook when I was in high school and I, I had to balance it. Now I know those of you, what's a checkbook? You know, okay. I know in the paper generation, what we did is we had these little pieces of paper, we'd tear them out. We'd write them, and they had, they're promising that there's, there's, there's greenbacks on the other side of them. And you write them out, and you have to do that. So I know it's an archaic kind of way to do it. But that's the way we did it when I, in, in, in the Stone Ages when I was growing up. These are just the lessons um, of, of life that you learn, that you need to learn. You, before you send your kids out in their car for the first time, you know, moms, dads, I don't care who it is, just teach them how to change a flat tire. You know, that, I never had to learn that in a bad way, but before our kids ever took off in the car on themselves, by themselves, then we went out and we changed the tire. And we got to let them learn how to embrace that, that, that experience. Before my daughter comes and says that, hey, I want to go to a school 1,039 miles from home, three states away, I go, wait just a moment here. I want you to go real close so I can beat up the guys, the hairy-legged boys that you bring home. And uh, we're not going to do that. And so, but she, but she decided she was going to go there. Well, I made sure she got a self-defense class before she went there so she could beat off those hairy-legged boys. And uh, that, so I, there's certain lessons in life that you just got to get uh, before you leave the house, hopefully. Well, you know, there are other lessons in life that some people just never get. Some people never get uh, certain things that they really need to. And Paul, as we've been reading through the book of Philippians, one of my favorite New Testament books, you can be finding it, we'll be there in a moment. But 
it's like the shackles have come off his eyes. At some point on the journey in the continuum of his life, the shackles come off. He sees the secret has been unveiled, the mystery of life and and, and joy of life. Because we've been talking about joy all along here. You know, how to keep dancing is really about how to have joy, joy that rises above our circumstances and flows deeper than our pains. And how do we have that? Well, Paul waits to the very end to give us a part of the secret. And so hopefully today uh, you will learn that secret if you don't know what that secret is. Because moms and dads, I'm speaking to you now, there is no guarantee just because you graduate from high school, you graduate from college, you graduate with your MBA, your master's or whatever, you get your doc. There's no guarantees in the curricula of life that you're going to get what I'm about to share with you. There are people I have seen them, I have walked with them, I have seen the tears, I have felt the anguish of people in retirement who still have not got what I'm about to share with you today. Now, not that I have uncovered something, but is that Paul himself, himself, he said, I have learned to value what's really valuable, I've learned to see what's really important, I've learned to count what really counts. And that's what I want to zero in on today. And there's something that happens whenever the shackles are taken off of our eyes and we begin to see this. The title of the message is Finding Joy in Less. Everything I'm going to share with you today, I'll promise you, is going to fly countercultural. It's not going to be something you're going to find packaged up in a box, written in a book, and, 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 and on a shelf somewhere where you have to pay $19.95 or something like that to get it. This is not going to be that at all. In fact, it's going to fly in the face of everything that the world will tell you about what you do is you get more and the more you get. The boy who at the end has the most toys wins is kind of a philosophy that we have out there that's undercurrent in our society. And we need to break that today. We need to shine light on that today and break from that. British stylist. So just imagine this. A British stylist um, was writing an article, Neil Borman who in his own world of fashion industry was realizing that he himself had been suckered in, believing the lie, had been actually propagating it in the British culture. And he writes this little uh, op-ed, if you will, statement that I want to read to you. From an early age, I have been taught that to be accepted, to be lovable, to be cool, one must have the right stuff. At junior school, I tried to make friends with the popular kids only to be ridiculed for the lack of stripes on my trainers. Once I nagged my parents to the point of buying me the shoes, I was duly accepted at school. And I became much happier as a result, as long as my parents continued to buy me the brands. Life was more fun. Now at the age of 31, here's a confession. I still behave according to playground law. We don't necessarily grow into what I'm going to share today. We grow older and what we do is we get income that will hopefully subsidize it for ourselves. 
that we can buy the things, invest in the things, do the things, that, that our, our, the price of our toys just get more expensive. The price of our stuff just gets more. And we get suckered into this. And I want to challenge us again just to think about it for a moment. What if we spent less but enjoyed more? Again, nothing about this in our culture will tell you to do that. But if we spent less, could it be, would it be possible that we could actually find more enjoyment through what we have, what God has entrusted to us? And I'm not just talking about things here, but I am talking about things. I'm not just talking about money here, but I am talking about money. I'm not just talking about your job. I'm talking about everything in life. Can less equal more? That's the question. Can having less or maybe settling or maybe not settling, but complacent. There's such a tension here. We've got to be very, very careful that we don't let happen to us what the great mind and British parliamentarian William Wilberforce said, prosperity hardens the heart. Prosperity hardens our heart. We've got to be careful that we don't let that happen. And you think, Mike, 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 you're going to be preaching against money and things and possessions, and I just bought a new car, and you're going to make me feel guilty about it. No, I'm not. I'm not going to do this. It's not my, my goal. If you have a bad feeling about what you just did, then that's between you and God, okay? You need to be dealing, doing business with God. What I am challenging us here is to make sure that doesn't happen to us, that our hearts become hard in the midst of having more. Hey, my God, it doesn't happen. The more I get, I get a raise. I thank God for it's the first thing I do, and then I go out and I spend it. I love bonus time around Northwest Arkansas. Dealerships have told me they love bonus time around Northwest Arkansas. They make sure their parking lots are stocked with new cars around bonus time in Northwest Arkansas. But here's the challenge. It's the same thing that happens way, 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 way back in Hosea will happen, yes, 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 right here in Northwest Arkansas. This is what God was dealing with. I gave them food and they became full and satisfied. But then they became too proud and forgot me. I I, I gave them what they wanted. I gave them what they asked for. I gave them a new car. I gave them a new home. I gave them that. I enabled them to have that. I made sure that there was food on the table, food in the pantry. I made sure that they had plenty of, plenty of vacation time. I made sure of all of that. But somehow in all of that, they became arrogant, pompous people, and they forgot me. I gave them success. I have seen people groveling and at the point of, of, of just brokenness over a lost job. And then they get a new job and it's like, you know, they come to me. Excuse me, finish this statement. They come to me for prayer. They want God's help. They say, they can't make it. They're one pay- paycheck away from bankruptcy. And then all of a sudden God provides for them. And it's like, then they just kind of forget God. Hey, God was really good to them. God met their needs, but then they forgot God. Here's a tension here because when I talk about contentment today and learning to be content, there's also the opposite of that is complacency. I'm not talking about complacency. When I talk about contentment, I'm talking about valuing what I have or what God has allowed me to have, I should say, and, and, and I don't need anymore. I, I learned to value what God has blessed me with. And that is enough unless God chooses to bless me with more. And then even then, as he blesses me with more, what is he wanting me to do with the more? And, and this, again, can, can pertain to jobs and income and, 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 and relationships. 
Let me just say this about relationships. Relationships are powerful, beautiful, amazing things when you're standing at the altar. I just did a wedding last night. I'm doing another wedding ceremony next weekend. And you know what? I see it after probably 60 weddings that I performed in my lifetime. Is every time the bride comes down in her beautiful white gowns and everyone looks dressed to the nines and it's all this amazing and there's tears and there's moms crying and their grandmas crying. And it's just this beautiful experience and everyone's madly in love with everybody in this utopia of life. But then fast forward... It's no longer the white dress, it's the oversized t-shirt. And it's, well, anyway, we won't go into all that other descriptions that you, you look at and you go, what happened? What happened? The love was so passionate, it was so real, it was so real, it was so overflowing. And what happens is we begin to drift and we begin to quit taking care of ourselves and our marriage and we take it for granted. That's complacency. And then we think in our mind, well, I need a new one of these marriages. I need a new marriage. And if I get a new marriage, then I'll be happy again. We'll come right back here and we'll be all hunky-dory again. No, 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 no. It's finding contentment. It's being able to restore this and bring it back so that you can be hot-hearted, passionate, and love with one another again. I'm just going to take the opportunity because it is so apropos that I want to challenge you, and we do this every year because I really believe in the family. I believe in the kids. I believe in the adults. I believe in the adults. If the adults don't make it, forget the kids, man. We've got to have good homes, good marriages, and every year we'll pull aside one weekend and we'll typically have somebody right here uh, come in and, and just pour into our families and marriages and whatever is going on, and we've talked about every topic under the sun. Well, this next year in, in, in February, we're going to go away to one of the best lodges, I think, in the, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the middle of America here, Big Cedar Lodge. And we're going to pull away Friday night and, all day, and, and Saturday and then come back here on Sunday. And we're just going to have a marriage checkup. Now, I mean, it's going to be very intentional. Ron Deal's going to come back again. He's going to share with us. And this whole checking up thing is literally before you go on the retreat, you will be given a marriage checkup. You will be, and from that will produce your 10 areas of your marriage. And they'll show you the strong areas and the weak areas. And it will zero in. And you'll think, okay, I, I didn't realize that was the weak area. And I, I didn't realize that was strong. And you're going to learn how to encourage the, the, the strong area to stay strong, but you're going to learn how to bolster the weak areas. And so we're just going to have an entire weekend about that. But we got to do that. We got to be intentional. Otherwise, complacency, complacency, complacency. And then you begin to wonder, where can I go from here? Instead of looking back and being content with what you have. And honor and, and cherishing what God has given you. Let me talk about this life desires things. There's this continuum of tension that is constantly pulling at us. There's the, the continuum of, of complacency. I talked about that already. Where you're kind of in the marriage and you're kind of in the job and you're kind of making the money and you're kind of whatever things you've collected in life and you kind of can, can become complacent about that, okay? And then on the far extreme over here is covetedness. I want more. I can't get enough. I, I, I maxed out that car. Let's go max out another car. Let's, let's get another second mortgage. Let's, let's do all this kind of stuff and let's keep feeding the monster, Okay, and that's this over here. Somewhere between I don't care and I got to have more is contentment. And that's why I say this is one of the secrets to having joy in our life is somehow learning to live right here. 
that God, you blessed me. God, you're taking care of me. God, you, you've done so many great things in my life. And that maybe if I spent less, I might enjoy the more that you gave me, that you provided for me. How do we get there? Let's look at it in Philippians chapter 4. We'll close out our study today in Philippians chapter 4. Begin reading with me. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 10. I rejoiced. Now notice that that's the word that he's used every single chapter. He's used it, I think, three or four times alone in chapter 4. It is the key word of which the entire series has been built off. It's which uh, Keep Dancing has built off. It's the word rejoice. It's, It's the theme of this book. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned to whatever situation I am to be content. There's the secret sauce. There's the secret solution. There's that that mystery thing out there that I have learned Whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low. (laughs) I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret, circle the word, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that the beginning of the gospel, when I, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphrodites the gifts and, and the fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable, pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. As you look at that passage and we see this kind of wrapping it up, I don't want us to miss the power, the secret. In fact, he says it four times in two verses. I've learned, I know, and he mentions the secret. I got it. I got something that's made the difference in my life that's enabled me to find joy. And it's not in stuff. It's not in things. It's not in more. It's not. It's in this. And what I want to do is I kind of want to, okay, Paul, you learn this. Teach us. Be our teacher. Okay, so what did you learn? How did I learn? So here's some lessons, if you will, in the, cur- in the curricula of contentment. Okay, number one is that we need to learn, and the sooner we learn it, the better, and the more joy-filled we'll be, is the insignificance of things. Make it big, bold, and plain on your paper. The insignificance of things. The former Federal Reserve Board Chairman Alan Greenspan was speaking to a Harvard class in their graduating ceremony and barking on 
what he called a material existence that neither my generation nor any other and that any that preceded it could have even remotely imagined. He gives a warning to the class at Harvard. Probably most of those students will make what some of us will take 10, 15 years to make, and they'll make it the very first day on the job. But he's warning them, listen, you're entering into a society that no generation has ever known before you, and that is you are going into the most materialistic driven society ever. Be ye warned. George Gilder put it like this, the average American today lives better than the millionaires of the 1800s. So if you ever thought you're not a millionaire, just look at yourself and just date it back about a, a century or so. The Greek proverb says it like this, to whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. I want to come back and I don't want you to miss those verses again. I want you to read them and see them. What did he say in verse 11? He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, I have learned. In whatever situation, don't change. My situation may never change. Mine may never get the raise that I want. My house may always be like it is. I may not get the new carpet that I've learned no matter. It's not the circumstance that determines my joy. It's not the situation that determines my joy. It's not the situation out. No, I've learned and in every situation I can be content. I can breathe deep. I can say it's okay. I can say I've got enough. I can say I've been blessed. You think, Mike, okay, this is just not an American frame of mind. Yes, you are right. He goes on and he says, listen, I have had plenty. I have abounded. I have had my belly full. I have facing plenty. And I've also faced hunger. I've had abundance and I've had need. I've been on the whole spectrum out there. And this is what I've learned. I've learned that secret of saying it's okay. I've got enough. See, there's that danger that I shared about in the beginning. There's that danger of that hardening of our hearts. There's that danger of that misguided priorities. There's that gain, danger of forgetting God after he's taken care of us. There's that danger out there that we have got to be aware of. And this is not just a Paul thing. This is all the way back to the wise, great literature of the book of Proverbs. And a proverb that maybe we should all memorize. When he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. But give me only my daily bread. You know what that means? That was, that was a prayer before the Lord's prayer. What we call the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. So you have Jesus saying, hey, when you pray, pray only for the daily bread. You have the proverb saying here, don't give me poverty or riches. Give me only enough for the daily bread. What that will do is it's going to lead into point two. So I'm not going to go too far into it right now. And the second lesson that we're talking about, and that is this, is that the, the sooner I can learn to depend upon God, that every single day of my life is dependent upon his provision in my life, the sooner I will find sustenance and completion in Christ. Because here's what will happen. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you, God. Remember Hosea? And say, who is the Lord? I forgot you, God. You, you blessed me, God. I, oh, but who are you now? Or I may become poor and still and so dishonor the name of my God. 
See, it's, it's, it's not, you know, if I had this much money, then I would do this. I would help that person. I would give more to the church. I would give more to the needy. It's, it's not if, 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 if. It's not what you would do if a million dollars were your, it were your lot. It's what you do with the buck and the quarter that you got. What are you doing with that? And how are you taking that and honoring God with that or dishonoring him or have you forgotten him in it? It's why Jesus calls us away from being so consumed about, consumed about. It doesn't mean you can't plan for the future. Bible talks about that. Matthew six nineteen says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust doth destroy and thieves break in and steal. I think if you go to the Psalms, you can't miss it there either. Hands down, the number one of the 150 Psalms of the book of Psalms, what people will come and say, what is your favorite chapter in the book of Psalms? I'm not going to ask for answers, but it would be Psalm 23. It's, it's, it's the one that people go to in times of comfort. Uh, in times of mourning, I've seen people go to, I've heard, probably read more at more funerals than, it's not even a funeral dirge, okay? It's this incredible, all-encompassing, everything from, uh, from top to bottom, in and out of our life. It's an incredible statement, but everything hinges upon one statement. It's the very first statement. The Lord is my shepherd. Say that with me. The Lord is my shepherd. And if you understand that, you know the next phrase, I shall not want. Say it again. The Lord is my shepherd. I Have we learned that? That I can literally go through life and say, okay, God, you know, the, the things, the, the cars, the homes, the events, the, the toys, the whistles of life, the, the, I, I don't have to have those. Now, here's the guy on the stage who two weeks ago said he struggles with the impulsive buying in the family. So I'm talking to myself as, as much as I am to anybody. I'm the impulsive shopper. But I have had to learn that, listen, I don't have to buy it just because that thing online keeps creeping me at every other website that I go to. <laughs> and how did you get on my Instagram account? I wasn't even looking for you on my Instagram. It just shows up there. It's like, get away from me. I said no the other day, but I'm weak today. And it's like, you struggle with these, 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 these pullings and these longings that kind of well up, I'm speaking personally here, that come from within inside and you see something that you want and I have to come back and say, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't need it. So he said he would provide all of our needs, not all of our greeds. The big difference there. The sooner we can learn the insignificance of things, the sooner we can get on to lesson number two, which is the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ. Man, I don't need anything else. I have you, Jesus. Leonard Sweet, professor at Drew University, I believe it's true what he says here. It's even similar to a statement that I've already made. In his book, Carpe Manana, he said this. He said, the greater the material fullness, the greater the spiritual emptiness. It's almost as if the more and more you have, the empty and emptier you are. And so therefore you get more and more and then you just get emptier and emptier and you're just so 
uneven, out of balance. The more stuff, the more we clamor for, the more that we fight and scratch for. It, it, it comes down to this. And the sooner we get here, the better off. And again, that's why I say some people never get here. And it's really sad when that happens and you see that and they're going into retirement and they're still not there. It's why, it's why Jesus said, I think in the Sermon on the Mount, the very first words that he said to his disciples, he said this, blessed are the poor in spirit, the bankrupt in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so it's almost as if you've got to become broken and poor and empty. You almost have to come to that point where you realize all the stuff, everything that I'm fighting for, everything that I'm wrestling for, every all of it, I'm... It's just empty. It's, we're spending money we don't have to buy things we don't like to impress people we don't like. And what is all this? You will never know that Christ is all that you need until Christ is all that you have. Until you can reach that point of bankruptcy, not, not literal maybe, maybe it will be for some, but until you come to, I, I, I don't have. But see, here's the problem. In, in good old America, in good old northwest Arkansas, America, in affluent America, in northwest Arkansas, is we got a lot. And what we'll do, if we don't have it, somebody will finance it. And what we've got to do is come to the point that I, we can say, I can do all things, not through my banker who, who funds me, not through my trust fund who enables me, but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When that becomes our mantra, Philippians chapter 4, 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I see football teams use this. People use this in other out of context ways, but really it's in the context of I can have nothing and I'm going to be okay. I can be broke and I'm going to be okay because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Jerusalem Bible translates it like this. There's nothing I cannot master with the help of the one who gives me strength. I am ready, is the amplified version, I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses inner strength into me. Infuses, notice that. That, that is, I am self-sufficient, not, don't stop there, in Christ's sufficiency. So I become sufficient because Christ is in me, infusing himself in me, making me able to do and to accomplish what I would not be able to accomplish on my own. But until I get to the point where I realize I can't, but he can, we're in trouble. And many times people will fall in finance and credit and debt and all that to get to that point of feeling that. No, it's getting to the point of that and then saying, God, I can't. Would you be my strength? It's like Paul, whenever he was realizing, hey, I'm not going to get past this thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times, God, get this thorn in the flesh from me. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he prayed it and he prayed it and he prayed it and God wouldn't take it and he wouldn't take it. And then he thanked God because he realized that he had sufficiency in the grace of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. This is what Paul said. I'm going to boast in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Some people have never experienced the power of God because they've never needed the power of God. Some people have never experienced the sufficiency of Christ because they've never needed Christ. They've lived it on their own. They pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. They figured it out. And listen, I'm all for responsibility, but it's realizing that I can't, but God can, and I need you. How did I how do I have this, this infusing, this relationship with God, Christ, that I'm able to do? To, I think, call them keys, if you will, to unlocking the power of Christ in you. And it's, it's to live pursuant to a relationship with Jesus. I'm literally pursuing, I'm actively moving my feet, my soul, my mind, my body. I'm actively, not passively sitting back, waiting for the church to spoon food, fill me on Sunday, a hot and fresh meal, or waiting for them to take care of my students to send them off to camp so they can get spiritually fed. No, but I am actually myself am going to own the space in my life and I am going to pursue him. It's what Jeremiah uh, uh, 29.13 says, which we all love 29.11, right? That's where God has the plans for us and a future and hope. But we've got to keep reading because if you read on to verse 13, this is what it says. It says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. It is an all-out pursuant relationship with him. It's not half-hearted, half-baked. 22 different times in the New Testament, in the Gospels alone, does Jesus call people to do this. Listen to this. Two words. Don't miss it. Follow me. Pursue me. Chase me. Get in line with me. If I'm climbing mountains, you climb mountains. I love it. It's a great commission. He's climbing a mountain. The Sermon on the Mount, he's climbing a mountain. And guess what? It's the mountain climbers that get to the top of the Mount of Beatitudes that hear the message of the Sermon on the Mount, not the people who stay in the valley. Are we going to be pursuant in our relationship? A series I'm going to start in, in, in August is just going to be called The Chase. And I just wonder... Are we going to sit back and wait for life to come in front of us like a buffet line? Or are we going to get up, get, in our, get on our feet, and we're going to follow him? We're going to pursue him. We're going to chase him. I hope that you'll take the month of July and you will just ask yourself one question. Am I a God chaser? Am I pursuing God, longing for him? Do I wake up early and create space in my day for God? I don't care what else is going to happen. Do I create space in my budget? Do I create space in my house? Do I create space in my mind? Do I create space in my life for God to move and to speak? Am I a chaser of God in the life that he wants me to live? The second key is to long. And some of us today, our prayer is not, God, make me a God chaser, make me pursuant to you. But God, just give me a longing. I don't even have a longing. Give me a longing to long for you, God. Maybe that's your prayer. And if that's where you land at the, in this month of July in your own heart, just God, give me a longing 
to long. I long to long for you, but I don't long for you right now. God, I want to long for you. I put this statement up on the, up on the screen a few moments ago. You will never know that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. But there's another statement that goes with that. You will never have Christ until Christ is all you want. You have to get to the point where you realize I'm bankrupt, God, without you. Jesus, I absolutely need you. At that point, you can enter into one of the most incredible relationships with him that money can't buy, credit can't leverage, networks can't develop, Friendships won't fill that only Jesus and Jesus alone can be. I'm reminded of a missionary in, in the streets of London in the ten, old tenement buildings and was uh, came across a lady who was literally lying on the floor dying in her own disease. She didn't have what was just what was goods were around her body. But she had something else. This missionary goes up to her and begins to share with her. And and she could see just on her face that she was sick. She could see on her face there there was a joy. There was something. They began to share and talk and she didn't need Jesus. She had Jesus. Would healing have been great? Would a home been great? Would a nice bed been great? Yeah, it would have been great. But did she need anything? She had joy that that other people didn't have. She had joy that maybe even that missionary didn't have at times. And she goes back and she writes this little poem. In the heart of uh, of London city, midst the dwelling of the poor, these bright and golden words were uttered. I have Christ. What want I more? Spoken by a lonely woman dying on a garret floor, having not one earthly comfort, I have Christ. What want I more? Number three, we're going to move into the secret of contentment. We're going to find a joy. We're going to find a level of life and living by investing in others. Investing our time. Investing our resources. Again, everything that I've shared so far, you'll not find in a book anywhere else other than maybe Scripture. Uh, You'll find it in Scripture throughout that you're going to find this is the method. Hey, you're going to be happy by giving yourself away. You're going to be happy by by taking some of those hard-earned resources that you work 40, 50, 60 hours a week and actually giving them away. Notice this as Paul writes his thank you closing here in verse 14. He says, yet it was kind of you to share, because what happened is Epaphrodites, we talked about him a few weeks ago. He is this first generation believer who leaves from Philippi, takes a gift to Paul in Rome uh, from the church at Philippi, gives the gift to Paul, nearly dies while he's there, gets better, goes back carrying this letter that we're reading and we're finishing up today. That's the context of this. So he's just received this letter back, or Philippi has just received this letter. And it says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into the partnership. See, partnerships requires buy-in from both. 
Paul was going. Lori spoke about this earlier. Paul was going. They were helping Paul go. So there's buy-in in the partnership. It's the third time he's used the word partnership in the book of Philippians. With me in giving and receiving, except you only. You're the only church. Even in Thessalonica. I'll be there in a year from now, nine months from now. You sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. As you look at that passage, you see him being very, very gracious, very, very thankful. Thank you so much. You shared. He said it twice. You shared with me. You gave. You invested yourself into my life. But now notice this. Don't miss this. Verse 17 may be worth the entire book. Paul said, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. See, you're blessed when you give. You're blessed when you invest. Yeah, the other people aren't blessed. Paul was very, very, very thankful. He said it twice there. He said it again and again and again. But at the same time, what Paul was most excited about was the fact that they are investing themselves and God is giving them the credit for their investment. I think a modern contemporary version of this is Joseph Addison who said this, what I spent, I lost. What I possessed, I left to others. But what I gave away remains with me. When you develop a generosity about you, when you develop that and you put it in, and I'll give you three words, consistent budgeted generosity, when you practice that, that will be one of the ways that you're going to find a deeper satisfaction with what you have, a, a deeper joy with what you have, a deeper contentment with what you have and who you are, because now you become the blesser and you get blessed being the blesser. Now, I know that doesn't fit into the economy of of America, but that is the economy of God. Think about each one of those words. And let me say this. This is not me trying to ask you to give to Grace Point Church. This is just a lifestyle where you, first of all, become consistent, where you literally build it into your life. It's not something you do one-offs, okay? Random acts of kindness, okay? I always like being the last guy in the Starbucks line after everyone's bought coffee before me. And it's like, oh, there's nobody back there. I break the curse. I break the chain. No, you know, you, 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 it's not those random acts of kindness that we're talking about here. It's consistent. It becomes a lifestyle. It's budgeted. This is something that Lori and I have been about since before we we're married. We, it's a part of the heritage that we brought into our marriage that we have continued and we've tried to instill it into our kids. It's just consistent, budgeted. That means whenever she was, had this uh, startup uh, graphic design company and it was at one job one week and three jobs another week and then whatever months later, then it was like whatever come, comes in, we're just going to consistently budget and we're going to give part of that away. And we have been consistently about that. And it's not just a small amount. It's about whatever God lays on our heart over and above. And we continue to increase that amount. It's not how little can I do it. It's but how much can I do it. And it's budgeted. It's consistent. And it's generous. We're giving it away. No strings attached. We give over 
and above what we give to Grace Point Church. But let me just talk about why I give to Grace Point Church first and foremost. It's because Wendy Parker, who's in this room today, moved into her house this week, Habitat for Humanity, that our church was a part of, being a part of, blessing that family. And that's awesome. She and her three kids are blessed because of that. And your giving to Grace Point did that, helped be a part of that along with the community. In Camp Siloam, we just had nine kids this past week at Camp Siloam make a forever decision to follow Jesus Christ. Can you give the Lord a hand for that one? Nine. Forever changed. We have 24 people this week on Wednesday leaving to go to Northern Ireland to a nation that has left God, turned its back on God, burned its Bibles and, and, and is moving on. And now they're going to serve and to, to give the gospel to them. We have these eight that were on the stage that are going to work among North Africans and to love and to share the gospel with them. This is something that's, that is just a part of what we do. Thank God. And I feel like this. I get more out of giving than I do out of keeping. And that's a life principle that you need to get down. I get more out of giving than I do out of keeping for myself. Mark, Mark uh, who's a, an attorney in Kentucky, tells his own life story of how he got to the point where he was giving 50% of everything that he had that came in to himself. He was giving 50% of it away. And as he started giving it away, he realized this, and this is a common theme in everything that I've shared. My pursuit, Mark said, of money drove me away from God. But since I have been giving to him, Everything changed. In fact, giving has brought me closer to God than anything else. Because here's what God's going to do, and don't take my word for it, take the Scripture's word for it, is what He's going to do is as you become that generous giver of investing in other people, verse 19, don't miss it. And my God will supply every need. Oh, wait. Again, not every greed, but every need. According, every need of yours, according to his riches. His riches, not my riches. His bank account, not my bank account. Mine has limits. His doesn't. And so here's what the psalmist said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his children begging for bread. Here's a promise I will make to you. You be faithful to God. Leave the results to him and he is going to meet your needs according to his riches and glory. You will never have a need not met. Would you bow your heads with me? Everything I share today flies against common wisdom common thought but I ask you maybe you've lived the other common thought try realizing that the things of this world are so insignificant realizing that investing in others can make an eternal impact and opens up an opportunity for God to do in me what would not have happened otherwise.
but more than anything, realizing that that infused presence of God in you enables you to do anything that he calls you to. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Father, you know, each and every heart in this room, you know where we're at and we cannot run from you. We cannot hide. You are here. And God, I would pray that we would not miss you. I would pray from this room today, God, that you would raise up God chasers, people hard and fast after you, longing for you, pursuing you. Don't allow the world to shake us any longer, but Lord, help us to realize that Christ is enough. That Christ is enough. That Christ is enough.